Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. I'm your host, Brad Betke. We got good content for you this week. We'll be discussing a big trade in the NFL, an update on some trades and free agency in the NBA, and of course, this week's fast break. So stay tuned, because here it is, episode 32 of the Box Score Sports Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go, episode 32. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the show this week. I cannot help but keep using that song. My boy Sean Spazzed is such a vibe. I just can't help it. So if you keep hearing it, don't blame me. Blame Mr. Gilliam. Let's go ahead and jump right into it. Probably biggest story in sports right now, Baker Mayfield was traded to the Carolina Panthers in exchange for a 2024 contingent pick. For those that don't know, a contingent pick essentially means they traded away a fourth or fifth round pick for 2024. In order for it to be a fifth round pick, he would have to play less than 70% of the snaps in Carolina. In order for it to be a fourth round pick, he would have to play 70% or more of the snaps in Carolina this coming season. So that's just a breakdown there. Personally, despite his struggles, I think Carolina got a steal. Now, I want to start off by talking about the Cleveland end of Baker Mayfield's situation. My first question is, how much of his results in Cleveland were really his fault? I will give you the benefit of the doubt for 2021, but can you make that argument for any of his other seasons? I don't think so. Let me go into a little more detail as to what I mean. He went through four head coaches in his first three seasons. And he was not the only player who was known as a success. Obviously, he was the first overall pick, previous Heisman, Did well in Oklahoma. He was not the only player on Cleveland to lack success. Looking at players like Odell and Jarvis Landry and Austin Hooper. You know, some some are succeeding. Nick Chubb, that man is just naturally gifted. Everything about him is just talent and strength and speed and just everything... Everything you could want in a running back. But it's a known thing. It's a known fact that the staff and the organization in Cleveland have been a crap show. I mean, I think four coaches in the first three years of Baker's career speaks in its own. Now this is something that, pardon my French, but this is something I think is pretty fucked up. Cleveland started exploring Baker Mayfield's replacement being Watson, which they were looking at Watson at this time, before Odell Beckham was even released from the team. Let me give you some dates and a quote to really put this into context. Odell Beckham Jr. was released from Cleveland on November 5th, 2021. Okay? 
in January of 2022, Cleveland Brown GM Andrew Barry came out and said, I quote word for word, we fully expect Baker to be our starter and bounce back. But all the way back in November, you were looking at his replacement? I don't think I understand here. There's a difference between it being a known thing that your player is not going to be returning. Obviously, eventually, both parties, Baker and the Browns, came to the mutual agreement that neither wanted anything to do with each other. But... And Baker Mayfield had even said in an interview, initially he had turned down any conversations to have about the situation, but then he went on a podcast and went into a little more detail and talked about how they said they were going to do one thing but did the complete opposite. And I agree. It stated that they were looking into Deshaun Watson before Odell was even released in November, and quite literally two months later, they came out and said that we fully expect Baker Mayfield to be our starter and recover and bounce back. That's fucked up. I don't understand that because y'all are all grown men. Andrew Barry, you're a grown man. Why would you come out and blatantly lie like it wouldn't get figured out? You know the era of time we live in. You know that media runs everything. Media gives the attention to so many sports teams and celebrities and all that the success of the world comes from media we wouldn't know shit if it wasn't without social media the news so on and so forth so knowing how powerful the media is is in today's day and age you went out of your way to blatantly lie on national television and i just can't understand it nor appreciate it nor respect it especially at the level that you are you're you're the general manager of an nfl franchise bro have a little self-respect. Like, why Why lie? And maybe it was the ownership that made him say it. I don't know. But overall, like, why? I don't understand the purpose. Because you already knew what you were doing two months beforehand. And yet you still come out here and say this blatantly, like, out loud. I, I can't understand it. But going back to what I said earlier, I mentioned about how I can understand your argument about 2021 about how Baker didn't really do too hot and that it couldn't really be put on Cleveland. I want to talk a little bit about 2021. You could potentially lean more on Baker for his lack of success because you look at 2020, the previous season, he was top 10 in QBR rating. So week two, 2021 tears his left labrium on his non-throwing arm. And from that point forward, he was never the same. You look at the statistical value to back it up. His QBR stumbled from top 10 to 27th. And it made the largest drop of any 2020 quarterback in the league. I think he went down like 30% in QBR rating. And he even came out and openly admitted that the injury affected him not only physically, but mentally. And I can understand that. You think about how old Baker Mayfield was. He was in his very young 20s, younger than I am now when this happened. 
you think about you spent your entire life grinding to be at the top level of this sport. You know, he goes out, wins the Heisman, plays well. He's a little cocky. I'll give it to him. You got to be if you're good. I think that has a lot to do with your self-image. If you boost your own confidence here and a little bit cocky, it genuinely makes you play better and produce better results no matter what it may be, you know? So then you go out, you finally make it to where you want it to go. You make it to the league, the NFL, you were the number one overall pick, try to come back to this franchise, revive it, play well, and then you get this major injury that affects you mentally. And totally off topic, but you talk, you look, if anybody listened to Draymond Green show, most recent podcast episode, where I think he titled it something about baffling Kevin Durant, something this or other, and he was talking about a lot of the NBA free agency, which I'll get into later, but he stated how Kevon Looney, who just got an extension with the Warriors, went through not one but two hip injuries in the beginning years of his career and somehow still pushed through it. And Draymond Green went on to say how difficult that is to do. So you got to understand what happened to Baker. you got to understand that he may have fell through the cracks. And he said that I mean, he lost all self-confidence and he just lost himself in general you, you got to understand it you got to respect it because it can happen to anybody think about kj hamler now i'm not saying that this is the case but this man has torn both of his acls in a matter of like three or four years He's been working his ass off to get to the professional level. He gets there and, the, you know what I mean, gets a bad injury again on what could have been a breakout season for him because he had a pretty decent one beforehand. I mean, now I'm beyond excited for him. Now he's got somebody like Russell Wilson rather than Drew Locke. I'm excited for him. He's going to succeed. But besides the point, injuries like this can have a huge impact on a player's career, especially professional because, like I said, you work from – an age you don't even realize if you if you have the right upbringing they push you to your best to your limits and then from there your natural talent and drive and success takes it from there so you work all your life all these years it's all you've ever known is this sport everything about it you push yourself push yourself push yourself to get to this level and then you get this really bad injury now with Baker Mayfield, he had to physically adjust what he's been doing his entire life, which is throwing a football, just so that he wasn't in as much pain and because of the injury. So I can understand how that would be mentally crushing. I mean, I don't want to say sympathize for the guy, but you, you got to understand. Now that we've gone through the Cleveland part of the deal, I want to go over what to look forward to. If you're the Carolina Panthers, you look at what they have. Now it's it. We know they don't have the best team. They finished last season five and twelve on a seven-game losing streak. But some things to look forward to. They have an elite receiving core. I wouldn't give them top ten, but it's enough. You got DJ Moore, who has had 1,100-yard seasons for the last three consecutive years and has shown that he belongs a top-10 receiver in this league. If you don't agree, please, I would love to argue with you. Because DJ Moore is one of the quiet, very consistent young talents in this league. 
And then you look at Robbie Anderson. Now, it's a known fact that Robbie didn't have the best season last year, and he hasn't had the best seasons in his career. Also, ironically, I'm sure those that are deep into the sports world, sports world saw when he commented about how I think there was an early nod that Carolina would be going towards Baker, and he commented on Instagram was like, no, but, well, here you are, so... I don't know what he's thinking because Baker Mayfield's worst season is better than Sam Darnold's best season. And Robbie Anderson played with Sam Darnold on both teams and got the same shit on both teams. So you look at some of Robbie Anderson's stats. Last year, he only had 519 receiving yards on 53 receptions. If you ask me, that's the biggest problem in his career is the lack of inter- of the lack of receptions. You look at the previous season, 95 receptions. That's 38 more receptions. And he got 1,096 yards. So he almost doubled his yards on less than double the receptions. You put him in the right situation, he will make it happen. Averaged almost two and a half more, or almost two yards more per catch and then you go back a little further into his career 2017 63 receptions 941 yards the two years after that got over 750 yards consecutively like he has what it takes but I think he's just not getting the proper attention from his quarterbacks you get a player like Baker Mayfield who's had some success he's broke 3,000 yards in all of his career seasons the only season that he didn't have 3,500 plus yards was last year and like I said he had the injury so it definitely held him back his best season was very clearly 2020 when he went had uh, 3,500 yards 26 touchdowns and only eight interceptions now he had more yards in the two previous years but many more interceptions Uh, his QBR rating was at its highest in 2020 at 95.9 so Baker Mayfield has the potential to be a top 10 potentially quarterback in this league. He proved it with the top 10 QBR rating in 2020, like I mentioned before. And it's all about that bounce back and being put in a good situation where the coaching and the staff and the organization utilize your talents correctly. I believe that that was one of the biggest reasons that Odell Beckham did not succeed in Cleveland. There will be argument that Baker Mayfield is blind and didn't see Odell a lot of the time, but I genuinely do believe that that is all based on how the organization is structured and how these teams are driven. you got to understand that no matter the fact that these guys are adults, they still have coaches. They still have bosses. So at the end of the day, no matter what they want to do, they still have to do what the big boss says. So I think there's a lot of misconception when it comes to that. So that's, that's a big portion of it. I think there's a lot to look forward to in Carolina. There's a lot of young talent. Like I said, DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson, not to mention they also received Rashard Higgins from Cleveland, which Baker Mayfield already has chemistry with. And Rashard Higgins is a good third, fourth option slot receiver. He's a good I'm there when you need me guy. He's not your number one. He's not your number two and potentially not even your number three. But that's what he's going to be. He's going to play out of the slot and he's going to be a good option for them. So I think that you got to look at it from that perspective. I think that he has good options. Then you look at the defense. They got Shaq Thompson is a young, good linebacker. Brian Burns, one of the best edge rushers in the league. 
They did lose Stephon Gilmore, which hurts, but he didn't do a whole lot last year anyway. Overall, you got to look at the perspective of what he's coming into versus what he had. Yes, you might argue that the Cleveland, round, Cleveland Browns roster was better than the Carolina Panthers, and it probably was, but is the organization better? Is the coaching staff better? Do they care more? Do they want more? Are they more understanding? So on and so forth. So you got to look at it from all perspectives here. And personally, I'm looking forward to what could change. Could this be the turning point in his career? Only one way to find out, and that is time will tell. But that's really all there is to go on about that trade. Like I said, we'll see what happens in due time. Now, we're going to roll over to what's going to take up the remainder, most of the remainder of the episode, and that is the... NBA free agency and trades update. What was easily the biggest trade so far? Rudy Gobert traded to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Now, what I find really fascinating about this trade is what the Jazz got in return. Malik Beasley, Patrick Beverly, Jared Vanderbilt, Leandro Balmaro, Walker Kessler... 2023 first round pick, 2025 first, 2026 first, 2027 first, and 2029 first. Now, the 2026 first round pick is a swap right. So essentially what that means is that it's a first round pick regardless, but you look at what it could offer. So essentially the way it is now, if the Jazz finish a better season than the Minnesota Timberwolves, they will swap with whatever pick the Timberwolves would have had. So let's say the Timberwolves get a lottery pick and the Jazz, let's say they get 25th. They would swap. So then the Jazz, regardless of finishing one of the better teams in the league, would get the lottery pick and Minnesota would drop down to 25. So I don't think swap rights on picks are talked about enough in the NBA because of how valuable they can be. Essentially, it's a win-win situation. If you have a crappy season, then you finish up in the lottery. Even if you have a great season, depending on whether or not the other team has a good season, then you will get another lottery pick. Or not another, but a lottery pick in exchange, regardless of how well you play. So it really comes down to it's double the odds that you get a better pick, essentially, is what I'm getting at. So that's a big pick there, but like I said, and then four first-round picks and literally an entire starting lineup. You got a point guard, two shooting guards, a power forward, and a center. Like, the depth that they just added to their team is crazy. Absolutely crazy. For Rudy Gobert. Now, I had a great conversation with a friend of mine. Him and I discussed, because we don't really see eye to eye when it comes to Rudy Gobert and his capabilities. I would argue that Rudy Gobert is a top three defender in the NBA right now. best def- One of the best defenders in the league available right now. And he's one of the best glass cleaners in the league right now. I'm aware that he's not the most offensively capable player on the planet. But he still averages over 15 points a game. He fills the void. You got to understand. There are players in this league who are on starting roster, uh, starting lineups that do not average even 15. So you got to understand what you're making up for. 
yeah, he's not dropping 25-30 like Joel Embiid is, but he's getting more blocks and more rebounds than Joel Embiid is. And he applies the pressure more often. Now, I also think that the the conception, I think that's the right word, the perception, sorry, the perception of what a good defender in this league really is is incredibly misjudged. A good defender in this league is not somebody that holds a player to zero points. Obviously, that's a bonus. But the whole concept of being a good defender and something that your coaches and your teammates are going to congratulate you on is if you force the player in front of you to take the difficult shot every single time. Draymond Green went into a lot of detail about this. He talked about how in the 20... I don't remember what year it was. I think it was 20... 15, when Andre Iguodala won the finals MVP, he went into detail about regardless of what LeBron did, he's LeBron freaking James. He's going to do drop 30 if he freaking wants to, especially in the playoffs. Playoff LeBron is one of the craziest forms of any player we've ever seen. You're not going to hold LeBron to 10 points a game. You're just not. So it's about forcing the player in front of you to take the most difficult shot available. If you can force them to if you can get them to force a shot, a bad or low percentage shot, you succeeded on that defensive sequence. I think that concept of being a good defender in the NBA is incredibly misconceived when it comes to the common population of NBA fans. They think that the only things that make you a good defender are a lot of blocks, a lot of steals, and holding somebody to low points. Bullshit. I call bullshit. Those are great bonuses, but if you go and look at the Defensive Player of the Year award, it's never the player with the most blocks or the most steals. And you might sit there and go, huh, I wonder why. No, it's very simple. It's about the fact that they caused the most often the player in front of them to take the most difficult shot. Rudy Gobert is fantastic at that. He is so long. You look at his length, length in his arms and his wingspan and his height. It's so hard to get a good high percentage shot look on a guy like Rudy Gobert. He's a decent perimeter defender, but the second you take a step over that three-point line, he just became one of the best defenders in the NBA. And that's a problem. You think about what the problems the Minnesota Timberwolves had in the playoff series against the Memphis Grizzlies. John Morant owned the paint. Jaron Jackson owned the glass. Well, you add a guy like Rudy Gobert in the paint, John Morant is not going to get as many good looks in the paint. He's John Morant. He's one of the best guards in the league. He's going to get the looks, but he's not going to get as many. Jaron Jackson is not getting nearly as many rebounds as he got. That could be the difference between winning and losing a series. Now, you look at what this does for Carl Anthony Towns. It gives Carl Anthony Towns more opportunity to stretch the court, right? It's a known thing that Carl Anthony Towns is one of the better three-point shooters in the front court in the NBA, averaging last year 41% from the three-point line. And he's averaged similar numbers in previous seasons. That's really good 
for a center. That's really good for anybody. Anything close to anything 40% or higher is considered good shooting from the three-point line in the NBA. Look at Stephen Curry's percentages. That's all I'm going to say. I think that this may be the best front court in the NBA for this coming season. You give me them too healthy, it's the best front court in the NBA, and I would love to hear who you think you have in mind. I don't think anybody can contend. You put two seven-footers on the starting lineup. That means the team not only has to stop two seven-footers, but they also have to score on two seven-footers. Having two seven-footers almost forces the team to take the three. Because, like I mentioned, these guys are long. They're a little slower than your guards. So they're going to be a, have a difficult time guarding the perimeter because they know if they get too close to the three-point line, the guard is going to whip around them and is going to outrun them to the paint and just outplay them. So they're going to take a step back or so when they're guarding somebody on the perimeter. Like I said before, though, you take one step in that, inside that three-point line, that whole narrative changes. This team may win the rebound battle 80% of their games, as they should. When you're as good defensively as Gobert is, you don't need to drop 30 a game because your defense makes up for your offense. That's what I was trying to get to earlier. Having a top defender in the NBA is more valuable than having a top scorer in the NBA. That's my personal opinion. It is more uncommon to find top defenders than it is to find top scorers. You could name 20 guys in the league right now that can drop 30. Can you name 20 guys in the league right now that could contend for defensive player of the year? No. That's why Rudy Gobert has been at the top of the voting for so many years. And you look at past seasons, there's a lot of returning defensive player of the years. Because there are not as many good defenders in the league as you would think there would be. There are good defenders and great defenders. I think Gobert is in the category of great defender. You look at the Wizards. This is kind of a crappy analogy, but it's an example. The Wizards have Beal. He averages 30 points a game easy. The team sucks. You know why? They don't have a good defender. They need another superstar, but they don't have a good defender. That's my point of view. That's my argument. Simple as that. I think that this trade tells you something about the Timberwolves that you might not have expected until this point. I think it shows that they're in win-now mode. And what I think it says even more so is that they see Anthony Edwards as the superstar of the team. We're plenty capable of what Carl Anthony Towns is capable of. I'm sorry, we're plenty aware of what Carl Anthony Towns is capable of. But he's not a superstar in this league. He's not. Edwards has shown in the last two years he potentially could be. I think that's how the Timberwolves see him, and I can agree with that. I can appreciate it and agree with what they see in Anthony Edwards. The kid is a raw, rare talent. And you look at last year, like I said, one of the biggest flaws that they had playing against Memphis is the defense. They were getting rammed in the paint. They added one of the best paint protectors in the league to their team. Yes, they took away some depth, and yes, they took away draft capital. But that's the whole concept of win now. You give away the future to bring in the now. Very simple. So, overall, this trade tells me that they are in win now and they think they can win now. I'm very intrigued to see how this duo works together because I can't say we've seen a duo like it in a very long time. 
Another big trade in the NBA. You got Malcolm Brogdon getting traded to the Boston Celtics for a 2023 late first round pick. Daniel Tice, Alex Neesmith, and a few other bench, potentially not even playing players. Long story short, I think Boston flossed Indianapolis. Or Indiana, sorry. Indy got almost nothing in return. Daniel Tice is a guy who got maybe 10 minutes a game in the finals. Nesmith, maybe even less. And the rest of the guys hardly played at all. I think one of the other players in the trade was Nick Stauskas. He got like one minute in game six when they were losing. One minute. And that was it. So that goes to give you a perspective of they just gave up a guy who averaged 19-6-5 this last year and had an even better year in terms of points per game the year before and is a 50-40-90 shooter in the NBA. The only two players to do that before him, Kyrie Irving, Stephen Curry, in the last couple of years. So clearly he's elite. He's good at what he does. He's not a superstar, but he's definitely better than what they had. Now, one thing I think that this trade does for Boston, I think it gives more options and more depth at the point guard position. You look at what happened in the finals. You had Marcus Smart playing the majority of your point guard, maybe a little Jalen Brown. They probably swapped back and forth. Who was your bench point guard? Was it Peyton Pritchard? That's what I mean. They didn't have the depth. You look at the Warriors, Jordan Poole. Is your bench point guard? Are you serious? He could start on 80% of teams in the league right now. That's what I mean by it. So this gives them more options. You, you're looking at potentially Marcus Smart, Defensive Player of the Year, coming off the bench as a sixth man. Potentially. I don't know how the Celtics are going to set their lineup, but it would make more sense to me to start Brogdon than to start Smart. Have Smart come off the bench as a sixth man. It just works better to me. I think this trade is big for Boston. I think it really shows that they're serious about winning. They they do not take what just happened to them lightly, and they're they're very aggressive. They they know that they can do it again, so they added one little thing to the to the picture that they think could help. And I agree. Like I said, it adds more options to the point guard position. I think that that's one big reason that they didn't win. So that's that's pretty big deal getting a player like that. Other than that, I've touched on all the other trades that have really happened so far in signings, like Bradley Beal getting his extension. I think he got $251 million. You got John Wall, who was traded to the Clippers, and then you got a lot of players like Darius Garland, Zach Levine, Jokic, um, a few other players that got massive extensions and max out contracts. So they're getting this bag, man. I'll tell you, it's crazy. I think Jokic is going to be making like $54 million a year. That's unbelievable. That's just absolutely crazy to think about. There's really not much of an update on the Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving situation. We're still kind of waiting on what's going on with there. It's It's been the loudest, quiet story in NBA history. Like, everybody is talking about it, but there's no actual lead in terms of what direction they're going. And you think about, like, for example, we were just talking about a John Wall to the Clippers. We knew that was happening before it happened. Baker Mayfield to Carolina. That had been talked about for months before it actually happened. There's no predetermined destination for Kevin Durant or Kyrie, and I think that's because they're so unpredictable. 
who knows when they what they come out and say next or what they do or where they want to go or how they handle it. There's just no telling. So I will do my best to keep you guys updated on that, but there's really nothing to change and nothing to update since last week or the week before. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. This week's fast break. Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. Sabrina Ionescu of the New York Liberty records the first 30-point triple-double in NBA history. I don't think there's a lot of attention going to this statistic, or nearly as much as there should be, considering there's only a history, including this one, 15 triple-doubles in the WNBA ever. A research report was recently released from Boston College saying that the late Demarius Thomas suffered from the degenerative brain disease known as CTE commonly suffered by NFL players. Paris Saint-Germain has hired Christopher Gaultier to replace Pacchettino as the club manager. The only thing in question is the winning record, as in his past, he did not have the best record as a manager or coach. There will be a lot of pressure on Gaultier. Cristiano Ronaldo has officially came out and asked out of Manchester United. He feels that he can't commit at the top level with the club, and Manchester United is not looking to shop him and expects him to live out his contract until the summer of 2023. The Houston Astros could push the Yankees out of the top spot, fairly easily scheduled from here on to the All-Star break that could potentially push the Yankees out and put the Astros on top again. Mookie Betts has officially returned for the Dodgers and Scherzer for the Mets on July 5th. The New York Mets are somewhat unhappy with Jake DeGrom's attempt to rush his rehab. In a scrimmage, he topped out at 101 miles per hour and struck out five of six batters faced. Someone coming back from a very tough injury and surgery that he did I would say that he's definitely pushing the button they're looking at longevity especially with pitchers considering it's such a short-lived position and lastly Rafael Nadal has officially withdrawn from the Wimbledon Open with an abdominal tear amid his semifinals appearance all right you guys that wraps it up for this week's fast break and episode 32 of the box score sports podcast Great stuff for you this week. I am doing my best to come up with stories. There's not a lot going on. So I'm doing my best to get as creative and get down into detail with things that I can. If you have any suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Listening Listeners feedback is a big portion of the media industry. Obviously, everything we do is in terms of reaction of the listener. So I would love feedback from what you guys are hearing and what you would like to hear. You know what to do. Hit us up on socials. Spread the love. Share the love. I will see you guys next week for the 33rd episode. Peace out. Uh,